Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the second season of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of the spiritual exiles out there that are looking for faith beyond the confines of institutional religion. And so this is the first episode of season number two, and my guest for this episode is author and mental health advocate David Finnegan Hosey. David is the author of two books, Christ on the Psych Ward and Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition. And in this episode, we're going to talk about how the language of faith intersects with the language of healthcare politics. You're going to hear David tell some of his own story, which is a very powerful story. And, and you're also going to hear about how we can come together to help reduce medical debt. So you'll want to stay tuned for the whole episode to get some really great information about that. So we're very excited to be starting our second season of the podcast here, and we're super excited that our guest for this episode is David Finnegan Hosey. So welcome, David. But actually, when we're willing and able to have more vulnerable, more authentic, more honest conversations uh, about mental health struggles, it actually makes us better and more faithful believers. Like it actually... um, uh, allows us, facilitates our ability to bring our whole selves to each other and to God, which is about as good a definition of what church is supposed to be as I can come up with. So our guest today is David Finnegan Hosey. Um, David and I actually met through um, a mutual friend a few years ago after you wrote your first book, Christ on the Psych Ward, Um, and and you came and spoke to our uh, new wineskins community um, in Marietta, Ohio there a few years ago. And you've got, um, I guess it's not really a new book, but a a more recent book out called Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition. Um, and so, uh, David, welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. We're glad to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for having me. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to have you. So why don't you um, just tell the folks a little bit about, you know, who, who you are and, and what you do and what prompted you to write these uh, these books and what kind of, you know, um, reaction are they getting out in the world? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, uh, a couple of different things about me that I could share, I guess. I, I'm the college chaplain at a place called Barton College, uh, which is a small uh, liberal arts college in eastern North Carolina. It's affiliated with the Disciples of Christ, the, the vast majority of our students are not affiliated with that denomination. And so I work with a student population of about a thousand um, who are from a variety of different backgrounds, from uh, very religious to not religious at all, and uh, engage with them around topics of spirituality and uh, holistic development and service and social justice. Uh, I've been here for about two years. Uh, I'm ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and live here in Wilson, North Carolina with my wife, Lee, uh, who is a hospital chaplain, uh, and our dog, Penny Lane. And we are uh, expecting a new little Finnegan Hosey in November. Lee is six months pregnant. So that's kind of an exciting aspect of my life yeah. right now, getting ready to, to be a dad of, uh, of, a, of a human child for the first time. Yeah. Um, By the way, Penny Lane is one of my favorite <laughs> dog names ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a yeah. great name. For she's, she's an internet star and she knows it. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. And uh, uh, in 2011, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after um, a couple of uh, hospitalizations. And ever since then have been 
thinking and writing and talking about mental health and mental illness and faith and faith communities and how our communities of faith can be in good, impactful, destigmatizing conversation around topics of mental health and mental illness. Um, when I was first hospitalized for what would eventually be diagnosed as bipolar disorder, I was in seminary. I was in my first year of seminary, and so here I had been thinking a lot about scripture and about vocation and call and what we mean by words like vocation and call. And so to, in the midst of that exploration, at the same time, receive this, uh, this diagnosis uh, really led me to think a lot about um, how um, the way we think about mental health, the way we think about mental illness uh, impacts the way we think about God and the way we think about church and the way we think mm. about community. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that led to the um, writing of my first book, Christ on the Psych Ward. And then more recently, um, Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition, tried to do some more work around some of the systemic barriers to care that people, uh, particularly with mental health issues, uh, though we can extend that conversation to all sorts of health challenges, um, systemic barriers to care that people experience um, in this country and ways that faith communities can be a voice in changing and challenging um, some of those systems that impact people's ability to access care. Um, I also uh, had a, uh, a chapter published in uh, another book called Belovedness, Finding God on Self, uh, sorry, sorry, Finding God and Self on Campus, uh, which came out just recently. And it's a great collection of writing by campus ministers um, who uh, all of us have had the experience of, of um, for lack of a better word, just like having the same conversation with students over and over again, um, which is basically like, what would you do or say or decide in this situation if you could really believe in this moment? that God loves you tremendously mm. and the way that that framing impacts students thinking around success and failure, thinking about partying, thinking about sexuality and sex. Um, and my chapter is about mental health. How do we, how do students think about mental health if um, they really think of themselves and understand themselves and know themselves as loved uh, truly and deeply by God? Um, how does that impact the way we talk about, what's one of the front lines of our country's mental health crisis right now, which is the college campus. And so, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of really, I think, important conversations to be had um, on a topic that has, in a lot of our faith communities, either been um, demonized or stigmatized or simply has not been there, right? Has simply been kind of kept silent or kept, uh, kept behind closed doors. Yeah, that that word stigmatized, I think, is really important um, because when I think about, you know, things like mental health, um, even things like substance use disorder, you know, we, those carry certain stigmas with them just in society in general. But there seems to be like in faith communities, sometimes there's an added layer, maybe. Does that make sense of, mm -hmm. of stigmatization that goes with those things? Is that... Is that something that that kind of rings true with you through your experience and your research? Yeah, so I would say that I I hear two different um, experiences 
uh, from folks who have tried to grapple with mental health in faith communities. So there's uh, one experience um, of folks who have have had traumatic experiences with churches or other forms of faith community that have overtly demonized mental health struggles. And I mean demonized in the sense of saying like, you have a demon or uh, you don't have enough faith. And if you just prayed about it or subjected yourself to church authority or let the elders lay hands on you, then you wouldn't have this problem anymore. And so that, that it comes down to if you just had faith, if you just prayed, then this would go away. Um, and uh, that's a, you know, that's kind of a pretty traumatic experience for people to then unpack and to come to terms with um, being able to actually think about um, mental health as health and mental illness as an mm -hmm. illness and, um, uh, you know, think about treatment options, um, not as some sort of failure of faith, but as something that they can do, that people can do to be healthy. So that's one type of experience. The, another type of experience, which is the one that's more uh, close to, to my own experience, is that simply the conversation doesn't exist at all in the church. So in the church that I grew up in, it's not that I was hearing sermons from the pulpit saying people with mental illnesses are possessed by the devil. Um, it's that we never, ever, ever talked about it. Um, mm. And in fact, my dad had uh, really pretty serious struggles, still you know, has, a, has a, a serious mental illness and had some pretty major struggles with that when I was a kid. And I just don't remember us talking about it in church at all. Now, which came first? Is it that uh, churches stigmatized that conversation and so we knew that we weren't supposed to talk about it there or is that we had the sense that this was an embarrassing thing to talk about it so it never came up, so why would the church know right, yeah. to talk about it? I don't know. I don't know which of those kind of comes first, but what I do know is that we have to break that silence and uh, get... Uh, pastors and lay leaders and members of congregations comfortable with the fact that like, yeah, this is actually something that we can talk about in church. And not only can we talk about it, but actually when we're willing and able to have more vulnerable, more authentic, more honest conversations uh, about mental health struggles, it actually makes us better and more faithful believers. Like it actually um, uh, allows us, facilitates our ability to bring our whole selves to each other and to God, which is about as good a de definition of what church is supposed to be as I can come up with, right? A, yeah. a place where we can actually bring our whole selves to God and share it with each other. Yeah. So, so how does that happen? Like what are, because obviously that's, I mean, some of that stuff is really deeply enculturated in church. Even just the silence itself is deeply enculturated in, in a lot of faith communities. So, what are what are some of the first steps um, to beginning to break some of that down and create those healthier conversations? Sure. So in my, you know, starting with my experience, like what I've done is I've gone first, right? So sometimes somebody has to go first and share a story um, in order to get other people to feel like they're allowed to share their stories. And so um, what, you know, my experience has been is that by being willing to share with a bit of honesty and vulnerability about, um, my experiences of hospitalization and diagnosis and medication and trying to figure out this whole messy, um, really, um, in a lot of ways, broken, 
uh, mental health system that we have as a country, when I start talking about it, right away, a lot of other people in the room tend to say like, oh, actually I've had this experience or my cousin has had this experience or my, my child has had this experience. I just didn't realize that we could talk about it here, yeah. right? So that's you know, the, the ability to go first and thus create some space where people can have the courage to be able to share their story uh, has, been, has, has become a part of how I understand my vocation. Uh, now, if you're, you know, you're a pastor, or you're a leader, or you're, you know, a member of a community, and you maybe don't have a story to share, or maybe you're just not comfortable, right? Maybe you're not there yet in terms of sharing a story. I'd say there are other ways to quote unquote go first and and kind of broach this topic. So, an example that I like to give is a pastor who I spoke to um, a while ago in Chicago, who his uh, congregation was involved in this community development and community organizing project, and they were doing listening sessions with people in the community, hearing from people in the community, what, what do you need? What are you worried about? What would you hope to build or to change to make your community a stronger place? And they kept hearing about mental health and mental health struggles and mental health access. And so this pastor is thinking to himself, well, I don't know much about this topic. How do I start talking about it with my congregation? So what he came up with was every week his church uh, does something called prayers of the people or joys and concerns that a lot of different faith communities do, right? They, um, you know, pray about stuff going on in the community. So he started praying for people with mental health struggles and saying, you know, on one week, like this week, I'm praying for people who experience depression and anxiety. Um, and this week, I'm praying for people who experience bipolar disorder. And he said this to me over the phone and I actually got uh, choked up. I, I, I got mm. sort of teary eyed. And this is, you know, this is not a topic I'm fragile around, right? I talk about this all right. the time, but here was this pastor who I'd never met. I've never met face to face who, whether he knew it or not, was praying for me, um, even though he'd never met me. And I don't get named a ton in church, right? Like yeah. there's not, it is not often the case that somebody says like, I'm really praying this week for people who have bipolar disorder. So that, for me, was a really impactful, power, powerful experience. So here's a pastor who's taking a very simple, very basic piece of the liturgy of their church, right? Not a, not a big, complex program, but you know, just the, the prayers of the people in a given week and creating space within that prayer for somebody who's sitting in that church who either themselves has or is, you know, loves somebody who has uh, mental health challenges, and suddenly that person seems seen in that space in a new way, in a more full way, right? Mm, yeah. So I think there are stuff that we do as faith communities that is already good, uh, good groundwork for the ability to normalize conversations around mental health and mental health struggles. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like um, your first book, Christ on the Psych Ward, seemed to me to sort of um, encapsulate, I guess, that, that kind of how to, how, to, how to open up that conversation, how to just like, I think one of the things we have to learn to do is just be honest with each other, right? And just use honest language. I think a lot of times the stigmatization carries with it um, or, or part of it maybe is there's this fear that I don't even know how to talk, like I don't know the right language to use to talk about this. And so even though I might desire to have the conversation, 
I'm afraid I'm going to use a term, right, that might be offensive to someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I really kind of felt like your first book was really helpful um, in showing people like just your own vulnerability, I think, helped open people up to that conversation, right? Um, and, 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 and something else that you said a minute ago um, that, again, I think was reflected in that first book, and I know the first time you and I met, you talked about this a good bit, was you're telling your story, right? You're, you're not speaking for every person everywhere that um, experiences mental health issues, right? But through, through you telling your story, you open up these bigger kind of conversations, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important, right? That, you know, I don't have some sort of universal story of what mental health struggle is, right? I just have David Finneganosi's experience of what mental health struggle is. Um, And just, you know, in fact, that by, by telling my individual story, rather than trying to kind of create a vague universal, like this is what it means to have a mental health challenge, or even this is what it means to have bipolar disorder, if I tell my specific story, the, the particularity of that is actually creates space for a more universal conversation mm. than if we just try to universalize, right? And this is actually like a deeply incarnational concept, right? That's like, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like that in the, you know, as Christians, in the particularity of Jesus, Jesus's life and Jesus's sort of like journey in the flesh with us as humans, that that, that somehow that very particular, very specific cultural context and, and personal context and in fleshed context somehow teaches us something true and deep and beautiful about what God is that like sort of like vague statements about God like sometimes can't do right yeah. so um, yeah I think I think that that the uh, the ability to kind of challenge like universalizing stories what we might call like a babble story right where everybody has to have one language and one way of thinking about this and instead have these Pentecost stories, right, where everyone can kind of speak and share in their own language um, and and actually in that be heard and understood in community. Uh, that's a really powerful, I think, transformation of how we think about this. Yeah, and I, I, it's it seems to me that that has implications beyond just the mental health conversation, right? That has implications for our conversations around race and culture and all of those things that become so sensitive again especially in faith communities like where we're afraid to talk about these things because we don't want to offend or we don't know what to say or whatever so that um i I think what you were saying about um sort of the incarnational nature of, of that sort of kind of moves our conversation i think a little bit towards your second book um Grace is a pre-existing condition. Um, I, so, you know, I follow you online, and and so when you started talking about the book, you know, before it even came out, I was really intrigued. Um, so tell us a little bit about kind of like what's the what's the um, the big idea behind Grace is a pre-existing, not just as a book title, but as a concept, right? Sure. Um, because I think the concept um, is really. Uh, a powerful thing for us to consider, especially as people who are, you know, in, in some way attached with some kind of faith community. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started talking and writing about my experience with bipolar disorder, I right away started hearing 
uh, stories from folks about um, challenges with the mental health system. And I had my own experiences of of learning that the mental health system in the U.S. was almost as much of a challenge on, for my mental health as the bipolar disorder that I had just been diagnosed with, right? I, um, you know, found out that I had a pre-existing condition. And at the time, um, that meant that insurance companies were legally allowed to say they didn't have to cover me, um, cover my health care, right? And so I ended up in a massive amount of debt. And then I'm dealing with debt collection agencies and trying to keep up with those debt payments and trying to navigate, you know, finding mental health providers that uh, will deal with me, even though the insurance companies won't, right? And mm. so this, I, I entered into not only this world of um, mental health and diagnosis and the sort of medical aspect, but also entered into this system that's really um, complex and a mess and excludes a lot of people and confuses a lot of people. Uh, and so I was like, okay, we got to start, we got to talk about this, right? I can't just like tell a story about me uh, grappling with my faith in the midst of a mental health crisis. We got to talk about these systems that prevent people from accessing care. Because if I say like, hey, let's create a community where everyone can share their stories and everybody shares their stories. And then at the end of that, there's no ability to access care. Like that's almost cruel, right? Like yeah, you know, yeah. we can challenge stigma all day, but if there's no care available there at the end of that, that journey, then um, I don't know that we've gotten very far. And so I started thinking and talking and, and pushing on these systems and I ran into this kind of interesting um, phenomena, which is that our language about mental health and about healthcare uh, is actually like deeply spiritual language, even though we don't realize it. Um, and, you know, admittedly, I have a master's of divinity. So, you know, sometimes if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. So like, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I just see theology and everything. And that's like, um, <laughs> but, but like just the, the example, uh, the, the kind of the big example that ends up in the title of my book is pre-existing condition, right? This healthcare language that's become, um, politically charged over this past decade um, this, you know, this word that we associate with debates around healthcare in the United States pre-existing, uh, is actually a theological term. So the very first use in recorded printed use of the term in English is from the 1500s and it's from a theological textbook and it's talking about the pre-existence of God and the pre-existence of Christ, which is this old, old, old theological concept, uh, the whether and how Christ pre-exists creation is one of the oldest church fights in the book. Yeah. <laughs> the thing we used to throw punches about at, at general conferences um, back in like the 300s, you know. And so here's this term that has this secular medical uh, meaning and is, is used in uh, terminology around insurance and health insurance. And it actually has this deeper theological meaning. That's about like the goodness of creation, right? That's about how God creates the universe out of a gracious gifting of God's creativity to make the world, right? So that the pre-existing condition of reality for people of faith 
is not pathology or brokenness or evil. The pre-existing condition is God and God's graciousness and God's goodness, right? Yeah. Like God says over creation, like, this is good, right? So what if we bring that to our healthcare debate, right? We're having these arguments about pre-existing conditions. Uh, we've got, you know, the president of the United States saying he's going to protect pre-existing conditions while taking overt legal action to do exactly the opposite, to remove mm-hmm. um, uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions. We have, you know, political debates about how we structure our healthcare system. What if we started with that same impulse of like, instead of starting with pathology and brokenness, starting with goodness, starting with people as whole beings who are thus worthy of care and belonging. Um, If we started our conversation about a healthcare system there, we might come to some different conclusions about what that healthcare system could look at, could look like, right? Now, you know, then we have to wade into policy debates, which are messy and complex and, and you know, not perfect. But what if that's our starting place yeah. uh, for coming to the conversation? So that's the sort of the big idea behind grace is a pre-existing condition is um, to take this terminology of pre-existing condition and bring to it the language of grace and the language of divine blessing and the, the language of God's goodness and good, good plan, good intention, good desire for creation um, being at the heart of our conversation about what does it look like to have systems that actually care for people? Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the theology of, you know, a, an original grace and original blessing that precedes what we might term original sin. Right. And mm-hmm. I could have, we, you know, we could get into a whole debate with Calvinism over, you know, like, um, but, um, you know, there's this notion that that's where we as human beings really begin, um, is, is with health and wholeness and, you know, the fullness of being. Um, but yeah, we have, we have these systems, our healthcare system, our economic system, our political systems, that tend to start the conversation at the brokenness, right? And rather than with, with the potential uh, of, of good health. So what's, um, there's a couple of things I want to continue to, to kind of dig into with that, but what, first of all, I guess, what kind of response have you seen um, out of this, out of the book and out of the conversations you've been having with folks about, um, you know, the, the systemic issues that are behind the brokenness of our healthcare system. Yeah. So one, one thing I'll say is that uh, I wrote this book about um, the way in which our U S healthcare and health insurance really system um, excludes a lot of people and is, is um, literally a works based system, right. Which ought to mm-hmm. make Protestant Christians raise our eyebrows a little bit, <laughs> right. Uh, that, that most people in the U S rely on their employer to be able to access healthcare. So you have to have an employer to access healthcare. And I wrote this book and published it in February. And then there was a global pandemic and millions and millions and millions of Americans had to file unemployment um, claims uh, in the middle of the largest health crisis that the planet has faced in a century. And 
uh, I didn't mean for this book to be as relevant as it was, right? Like <laughs> I had, I was like, oh, the 2020 election is coming up and maybe we should have something theological to say about healthcare. And the extent to which our system is harmful has been on such horrifying and large, large scale display over yeah. these past months. <clears throat> and um, so, so I think like this conversation is like even more important than it ever has been. C- can this be a moment where we actually imagine something different for our communities than a system that is built for people and times that are least in need of it. Right. And this is a time where people are most in need of a healthcare infrastructure that works for everybody. And we are, we have a system that's, that's built specifically to fail uh, right at this moment. Right. So I think that that's been, um, that's changed in a sense, the intensity of this conversation um, and the, the way that we, I think as communities are thinking about health and healthcare um, has, has expanded. And so I, I would, my hope would be that um, our conversations as faith communities about those topics can expand and deepen as well. Is there, is it possible even to depoliticize it, especially when we bring that conversation into the context of faith communities, right? And faith communities we know are so highly polarized politically themselves, even within certain communities, right? Um, and and I think we've seen this debate over healthcare has been so massively politicized. Mm-hmm. Um certainly even, you know, prior to the the current administration and maybe just exacerbated um, within that, but is there a way that we can try to move these conversations so that people don't, you know, kind of just set up their flags in their political camps and say, you know, yes, we have to do this or no, we can't possibly do this. Can we, is there a way to pull that out of the political realm so that we can kind of have the conversation about human need, right. That we need to have. Yeah. So I think it's, it's tough, right? It's challenging. I mean, one of the things that I always say about, about preexisting conditions in particular is like, I really long for a nonpartisan debate, uh, uh, or uh, sorry, not like a nonpartisan consensus that like we have to have systems in place that protect the health of all our citizens. Right. Uh, I don't want that to be a partisan debate. The fact that it is um, <laughs> means that I can't avoid politics when I talk about it, right? Right. Um, it would be great if one political party hadn't spent the past decade trying to eliminate the only legal protections for people with pre-existing condition on the book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would like them to stop doing that. <laughs> right. And then, then we could have a more bipartisan conversation, right. About yeah. this. So, but I think your point about like, how do we get people to talk about it with it without just um, armoring up yeah, is an yeah. important one. Right. Um, and I think 
starting with story, starting with human need, and then asking the theological questions, right, of like, what do we think about God and humanity? And what are those things that we think about God and humanity imply for how we care for people? Yeah. Is God a capitalist, right? I mean, is that, right, yeah. right, right. You know, does does Jesus care if you have a pre-existing condition? Um, uh, and so then, right, if we can if we can return to a conversation about like what are our principles, what are the ways in which we care for each other, then you and I can disagree about what that looks like in terms of policy. Right. right. That's right. okay. Like actually like there's, and, and in fact, good, healthy, robust debate about what things look like in terms of policy can be a good and healthy thing. Right. Um, so, but with that said, ultimately when we use a word, when we use the word politics, like in the U S we often think about Democrats and Republicans, right. But like politics is just like how we make decisions exactly, as a collective yeah about how we use resources and about how we, um, you know, meet the needs of a population. So in a sense, like, no, you really can't depoliticize this. In fact, that's one of the things that I discovered, right, is that um, what I initially thought of as like a, a struggle that I was having, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this experience of mental health struggle, receiving a diagnosis, very quickly ran me into these systems and these um, ways of excluding and excluding people from care. And the the conversation about those systems is a political conversation, right? Right. So like me as somebody with a bipolar disorder, I can long for it to not be a political issue, but I couldn't get health insurance for a while because it was legal for companies to discriminate against me as somebody with bipolar disorder. Right. Right. Um, so there's, there's, I think for what I'd say is that I think a lot of it has to be faith communities, churches redefining for our members, what it means that something is political or not political mm-hmm. um, away from like that being about, the political party I affiliate with and more about like, what do we believe about what our responsibility is to each other and to our community? Right. 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 I think that's, I think that's really well said. Um, you know, there, there, because there is, there is that sense that I, I like the, I like your definition, I guess is what I'm trying to say about, um, about what politics really is, right. That it really is just the way that we, basically conduct our public business as a society. Right. Um, and the, the decisions that we try to make, um, so that we can all coexist (laughs) on, Mm. on this planet. Sorry to interrupt the conversation friends, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the accidental tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and especially for our Master Gardener level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. 
To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes. And now back to the podcast. So um, just to shift gears slightly, one of the things um, that really intrigued me that you did um, with, with your second book um, was to use, because you're not just talking about a thing, right? You're not just putting something out for discussion, but you're actually moving it to an action step. And so you had, um, uh, you know, some of the proceeds from that book um, go towards helping people get out from under some medical debt, which I just think is um, a really brilliant and beautiful thing to do, you know, as a human being. Um, but, but it has some pretty, you know, when you talked about that with our new wineskins community a couple of months ago, um, I was really fascinated to hear how that worked and honestly how easy it is for people, for, you know, faith communities or even, you know, social groups and things like that um, to make an impact on medical debt in this country. So can you talk a little bit about how that all happened for you and what it looks like and how it works and, and honestly how easy it is, right? Sure. That, that's what really blew my mind, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so you know, I uh, again when I was I was diagnosed and then um, was informed by my insurance companies, uh, my insurance company in a you know very nicely worded letter that I had a pre-existing condition, and so um, they then determined they didn't have to cover any of these hospitalizations that I, I had uh, in 2011. Um, you know, um, that meant all of a sudden I was in tens of thousands of dollars of medical debt just a massive amount of debt, uh, insurmountable. No way I could get out from under it um, on my own, right? Mm -hmm. And I have been able to get out from under that mountain of medical debt because of the generosity of a lot of people and um, uh, people who stepped in to um, provide support and care. And um, I, I, there was no way I could have done it um, by myself. Um, so I was writing this book and, uh, was writing a chapter about debt and about the way that the, our, um, our traditions, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition before that, um, engage very deeply actually with debt as a concern and mm -hmm. the forgiveness of debt is this major theme throughout, um, the Hebrew Bible <clears throat> and this concept of the biblical jubilee this 50-year celebration in which all debts were canceled which jesus very explicitly mentions in his first sermon at the synagogue of nazareth and uh, which jesus brings up in this prayer that he teaches the disciples when he teaches them to pray forgive us our debts that word yes. in greek means with, debts. with apologies yeah. to our united methodist you know, colleagues, uh, right. of which I am one. Yeah. Who, frankly, we get it wrong. It's not trespasses, it's debt. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. The, but, the original yeah. languages have a financial sort of implication to them, right? So explicitly financial that yeah. in Matthew's version of that prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples the prayer and then says an additional thing where he's yeah. like, also, you need to forgive each other for other stuff because he knows that the disciples would have heard his prayer to mean forgive financial debts, right? Yeah. So we've sort of reversed it where we hear forgive and we assume we're talking about interpersonal sins 
and interpersonal hurts. And Jesus is like, like crew were like, oh yeah, debt for forgiveness. Right. Of course, right. that's what he did. And Jesus had to be like, yes, but also like, I know you're pissed at James right now, but you're going to have to like, right. so, so like, this is like deep, deep in our tradition is this idea of debt forgiveness. And I'm, so I'm researching this chapter and I stumble on this organization called RIP medical debt, as in rest in peace, medical debt that helps people forgive medical debt. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a no brainer. Like <laughs> I can't write about this organization and then like pocket the money from this book. So, <laughs> so the profits from uh, Grace is a Preexisting Condition are all going to RIP medical debt. And what this organization does, it was founded by two guys who were in the debt collection business. So they knew how debt collectors did their work. And then they started feeling kind of scummy about it because it's sort of scummy work. <laughs> and so they were like, we don't want to be debt collectors anymore. We want to help people forgive debt. And we know how to do it because we know how the system works. And the way it works is uh, people like me go to the hospital, then we can't pay our bills. So we end up in this massive amount of medical debt that is never going to get paid. And hospitals don't want to sit there with all that debt, right? They don't right. want to be debt collection agencies. They're not good at it. So they sell it off and they sell it off to debt collectors for very, very cheap, like pennies on the dollar so that they at least get something back and then they, can, they don't have to worry about the debt anymore. So you, debt collection agencies buy debt for pennies on the dollar. And then they harass you and bug you and they get a little bit here and a little bit there and that's how they make their profit. Mm. So RIP medical debt goes and buys up medical debt, pennies on the dollar. What that means is that if you give a dollar to RIP medical debt, they can purchase and then forgive $100. And so instead of getting a call from a debt collection agency, somebody gets a call or a letter that says, you don't have debt anymore. Every dollar you give, can forgive $100 of debt. So if you give $100, right, then you're forgiving $10,000 of medical debt. The average medical bill that people can't pay back in this country is 600 bucks. Most families in the US don't have 600 bucks laying around to pay a medical bill. So six bucks to RIP medical debt <laughs> pays off a family's bill that otherwise would land them in debt they can't pay back. Wow. Um, it's amazing to me that it's that that's such a low number, right? Because I think we generally think in terms of people having thousands and thousands of dollars in debt because we've all heard, we've either had that experience like you have, or we've heard stories of, you know, um, my cousin, you know, lost his job, broke his leg, went to the hospital, got a bill for $20,000 that he can't pay off. But so that $600 seems really kind of low from the anecdotal evidence that we tend to hear, I think. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's such a low number and yet such an insurmountable number for so many families yeah, right? yeah. because it, it means because it's, it's $600 outside your normal monthly budget. Right. When you're already so living. You live, hand yeah. Exactly. If you yeah. live paycheck to paycheck and you get that medical bill, that's it. You're done. And then, then you're stuck, right? Because right. now you've got a medical bill you can't pay back. A ton of families then, what they do, right, is they put off needed medical care or you don't 
pay a different bill for the month or you don't get groceries that month. None of those things are healthy, right? So you get sick again, you end up with more medical debt. So then it balloons and balloons and yeah. balloons, right? So, uh, yeah, so, you know, with Grace is a pre-existing condition, I've donated uh, like uh, around $1,200 worth of profits um, to RIP Medical Debt. That means that together we've forgiven $120,000 of medical debt um, with this little book, right? Yeah. So it's this, what I say to folks who are in communities, whether faith communities or discussion groups or whatever, is like, you can do this, right? Like your community can pool resources take up an offering, whatever, and be part of forgiving medical debt in your community. And you can actually, through RIP Medical Debt, and it's just ripmedicaldebt.org, you could target it to your specific community. Um, you can email them and work on a, like a campaign specific to your community. Uh, they have a specific campaign around frontline medical workers who are in debt right now, which like, I don't know, the definition of a broken healthcare system, right? Is yeah, that right. we have frontline nurses who have medical debt they can't pay off. That's like, I use this word advisedly. That's insane. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I, uh. you know, so, so you can target it to, um, to frontline medical workers and, and you can do this. And say you've got, you know, a little congregation that has 30, 40 people in worship on a Sunday, um, you know, 300, $400 goes a long way. Yeah, something yeah. like this, right? So um, the other thing is you might find in doing that when you broach the conversation, somebody raises their hand and says like, Hey, I can't donate to this effort because I'm in a massive amount of medical debt. Then maybe your congregation pulls resources and helps get that person out of debt, right? There's yeah. a there's a Baptist congregation here in North Carolina called Jubilee Baptist that just once a month they have a jubilee service where they forgive somebody's debt in the congregation, and then that person is able to help the next time they work to forgive the next person's debt, right? That's such so, an incarnational, you know, to kind of come back to that word. Yeah, um, it is such an incarnational model for how we could begin. I can just kind of imagine, you know, it, that kind of thing could snowball so massively so quickly if if we can just, you know, help. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here was so we could talk about this and kind of raise some awareness for that. Because, I, you know, I think what you're saying is so important that, you know, a little faith community like, you know, the new wineskins community that I'm part of that has 20 some people, that, you know, in an average if we just, you know, kind of took a collection and we've kind of talked about this, we haven't worked out the details yet, but um, because we don't meet in person, we don't have an offering place. So we got to figure out how to do all this digitally now. But, right. Um, but, you know, I mean, we could easily um, just in our little group over the course of a year or so um, make a massive impact, you know, for somebody that's, that's just buried under this debt. Yeah. You know, and to hear that somebody for $600 is buried. Right. Like that, that's like, it's such, you know, it's, it's, it's the easy pickings, right? It's the low hanging fruit. You could just start to knock some of that off. Yeah. Um, and then like, like you said, the, the kind of snowball effect, the domino effect of that, like once I'm out from under my debt, then I am in more of a position to help someone else. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think you're in more of a position. I mean, you asked about kind of like politicization and, and depoliticizing, right. Of like the, like here, you know, we donate money to this cause. That's something we know how to do, right? Like, okay, you can help somebody concretely 
get out of debt with your donation. But now we've started a conversation about medical debt, right? We're meeting a concrete need, but we've started this conversation about medical debt. Now we can start asking the question like, why the heck does our system work like this? Yeah. Like why, why is it that Carol, who we all know and love is in debt because of a $600 hospital bill and she can't get out of it. Like we know Carol, Carol's a really hardworking person. What the, what's going on here? Like why is she trapped by this system? Maybe there's something wrong with that system. And what now we're having a conversation about a system, a systemic issue that we've, instead of coming into it from the, the sort of partisan lens of politics, we've come into it through something that we tend to be a little bit more comfortable with, right? As faith yeah. communities, like that meeting of direct need, but like we're meeting that need. And now we're asking a deeper question. Like, why does the system work this way? Does it have to work this way? Could we design something better? Right, right, right. Oh, that's so important, man. Um, so that's, um, I, I would love to talk about this all day, but we are, yeah. <laughs> we're starting to creep up on the end of the time um, that we've got together. Um, but I just, I, I love some of the stuff that you're working on. I love how you're, you're taking, you know, the work that you do creatively and putting it into some kind of concrete action like this. I think, you know, as faith communities, honestly, I think a lot, what a lot of, what a lot of people I think have experienced that maybe has turned them away from, you know, our, our churches, our institutions is that there has been for so long that disconnect between our words and our actions, you know, that we, we talk about grace, but we don't, show a lot of grace. You know, we talk about forgiveness, but we're not a very forgiving people. You know, we talk about, um, you know, caring for, you know, the poor and the orphan and the widow and all of that. Um, and yet other than writing checks, (laughs) sometimes Mm -hmm. concretely, we do very little to do that. Um, and I think, you know, to kind of circle back to what you were saying about the chapter that you have in the book, you know, for campus ministries, right. As we, as we try to, to engage, you know, younger generations um, and not so much to recruit them into, you know, kind of the formal church, but to just kind of release and empower them to do their work in the world. Like their language for all of this comes much more naturally than it does for maybe my generation and your generation. Yeah. Um, Just to kind of, you know, wrap things up a little bit. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, the work you're doing on campus and, um, what, what it's like to work with Gen Z people who are kind of tired of all the bullshit and just want to get stuff done. You know? Yeah. Look, I, I, I will, I'll give you this freebie. I don't usually tell churches how to recruit uh, young people. Um, but, uh, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, how do I recruit young people to our church? Try this, hang a big sign out front that says we help forgive student debt and see what happens. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, like, you want to talk about, like, again, there's this deeply biblical language around debt and debt forgiveness. Uh, 18-year-olds know more about debt than they should. Yeah. Right? So, so like, hey, church, like, we say we want to be relevant to young people. Talk about forgiving student debt. Right. Like yeah. that, that's a thing we could be talking about. Right. right so right. I'll, let me, I'll just, I'll just put that out there uh, <laughs> for, for churches to consider. But yeah, I mean, I think like working, working with college students um, means uh, working on one of the front lines of the breakdown of our mental health system. Um, 
we, and this is, you know, we have successfully, um, and I think to, to the credit of a lot of people, um, created much more honest conversations among young people about mental health and mental illness, and we don't have the capacity to care for them, right? And so yeah. we, we uh, have a whole generation of people who are much more comfortable, and this is a good thing, saying, look, I'm, I'm having a real mental health struggle right now, uh, but we haven't built a corresponding capacity to provide care and access to care for yeah. that generation of people, right? And so the college campus is where you see that in a very concrete terms of like, for example, 40% of students showing up on a college campus now saying, uh, yes, I do have some form of mental health struggle. And we have campus counseling centers that are just vastly underfunded and vastly undersupported. One of the things we need to do in response to that is get much better about integrating um, conversations and care around mental health, not just in a localized counseling center, but but throughout communities and across communities, right. right? And so congregations can be part of that. Campuses can be part of that. Um, community centers can be part of that, right? There's a lot of different, different aspects to, to building that care. And part of them, that then is then also advocating in these systemic issues. Um, but yeah, college students, are that's who taught me to talk honestly about mental health and mental illness. Um, it, was, it was working with college students after um, coming out of the hospital that, that taught me that going first means that we can create um, more honest conversation and that those more honest conversations are a beautiful picture of what probably the earliest church before it was even called such a thing looked like. And so there's yeah. this moment in Mark's gospel where the disciples have come back after being sent out to um, fight the good fight and they gather with Jesus and you kind of can imagine them gathered around the campfire, sharing a meal. And it says that the disciples told him all they had done and taught. And I forget who first pointed out that all to me in that little <laughs> verse in Mark 6, right? But like, if that's true, if the disciples really told Jesus all that they had done and that had happened to them on this, this journey, there was great things and victories and big wins. And there also were disappointments and failures and doubt and fear. Sure, yeah. And so the, here's a vision of what church can look like is this little group of people gathered around each other, gathered maybe, you know, on Zoom right now, um, being honest about the, the joy and the pain of trying to be faithful in a world that tries to beat um, faithfulness and hope out of you and finding Jesus there in that circle with us. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that vision of church, uh, I learned that from college students uh, who are willing to be brave and vulnerable and share um, what was going on in their actual lives, in their residence halls, in their classrooms, in their home, um, and say like, yeah, we can talk about this here. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, to be able to engage with, with um, younger people, I, I always, I'm always hesitant to the way I use that language because Every time I say it, it makes me feel even older, right? <laughs> but I do think like um, – Yeah, I, it's it, uh, great. I, uh, you know, working in campus ministry is great because I'm like – I'm in, in a whole lot of church circles. I'm still like 
what a young, energetic man. And then, <laughs> but then like I work on a college campus where I'm just irredeemably old, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, <laughs> just I always like, said when I was in youth ministry, it like simultaneously made me feel really young and really old. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I don't know quite what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, but I but I think I do think engaging across generational lines, right? So it's not always just, you know, us old folks reaching out to young folks. It it is, and that's one of the things I see with like with Gen Z young people, like they're really willing and eager to have that engagement. I think millennials too, to, to, to maybe a lesser or a different extent. Um, maybe it's not so much quantitative, but, um, you know, that for, for those of us who are, you know, I kind of identify as Gen X, although I'm almost borderline boomer. Like <laughs> if right. I had been born a year or two earlier, um, but we haven't had that like innate desire to really reach across generational lines um like you know the 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 younger generations now really do like i see so much value you know like my my daughters one's a millennial one's a gen z and and they really deeply value the relationships they have with people in their 60s and 70s and older like you know that was not something i grew up with like we you you loved your grandparents and your aunts and uncles, but you otherwise didn't engage a lot with people a lot older than you. So that's what I'm, I'm with you. Like I see a lot of hope in that kind of intergenerational engagement. Yeah. I would love to see, I think, uh, uh, you know, churches have often lost the capacity to have intergenerational conversations, which is such a sad thing because it's one of the main gifts that we have to offer, right. Is, yeah. is intergenerational um, connection and so rebuilding that capacity and learning how to have really thoughtful, caring conversations across generations. Like that's where to me, that's a huge part of the future of what it looks like to be a faith community, um, in, in this like context is we have to rediscover rather than what our tendency has been over, I think the past, you know, maybe 50, 60 years or so to have these silos where like the children go here and the youth grow here. And now because of the, you know, the aging of the, the boomer generation, like we need special um, uh, ministries for people who are retirement age, but don't call it that because that will offend them. So come right. up with some yeah. cover name for it, right? And it's like, like we've 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 almost like killed off our own capacity to be one doing one of the things that we should be the best at doing, which is how how do you have really thoughtful, um, non-judgmental, deep listening spaces that connect people across generations where uh, folks can be mentors for each other and learn from each other and develop yeah. like mutuality and and respect um, across. Uh, across generally generational lines. Right? Yeah. So. Always hope, man. There's always, <laughs> yeah. there's always some hope when we bring that into the conversation. Yeah. Well, um, as I said, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. Is there anything new that you're working on uh, and, and where can folks find the work that you're doing out there? Yeah. So you can always uh, check out uh, my website, David Finnegan, Um, You'll find, stuff about my books there. There's a free excerpt from Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition that's about voting and mental health voting. And so, you know, pretty relevant topic right now in yeah. 2020. So, um, but also a lot of good resources like for folks who are in crisis. And if you're interested in 
mental health first aid and kind of first responder stuff. I've got links to that on my website. So definitely check out davidfinneganhosey.com. Uh, on social media, I'm at Foolish Hosey. So on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you can find me. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, some, uh, some ideas bouncing around for, for new projects in the works, uh, but we'll, we'll see where that all leads. So it's been a, there was kind of a pretty big season of writing and publishing and then, you know, uh, uh sharing with folks about the, the new book and about belovedness, um, the, the campus ministry book. And so, um, you know, hopefully over the next few months I can get back to, to the, the, the writing board and, and, and see what kind of things are coming up. Yeah. But I do post, uh, post blogs on, on my website at davidfinneganhosey.com. So you can catch some new writing there as well. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And you, you know, you're going to be a dad. So you're like, you get to yeah. take a break for a little bit, right? So. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's probably my big creative project right now. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very we're, cool. we're creating a human. That seems like a lot of work. So. That's, that, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's worth it, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. So. Well, David, thanks so much again for, uh, for being on the podcast here. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. I always feel like I've learned something really important whenever we get to have a conversation together. And so uh, hopefully we'll, um, we'll have another excuse to, to get together and, and do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. Thanks, Joe. Really. Uh, it's great to talk to you. You too. Take care now. Thanks again. All right. So that's it for the first episode of season number two of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And I'd like to, again, thank our guest, David Finnegan-Hosey, for such an incredible and insightful conversation that I know is of massive importance to many of us when it comes to these issues of healthcare policy and mental health and all of the things surrounding those issues. So thanks to you listeners for taking the time to, to listen to this episode, and I hope that you'll engage with the conversation in some of our online platforms. You can find us on the web at accidentaltomatoes.com, and across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages. That's where you can get the most up-to-the-minute updates of all of the cool things that are going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebrights.com. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I am at joewebrights. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, I would love to hear from you. You can contact us again on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And once again, if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in all of these ongoing conversations that we're having together. And once again, if you would like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for the community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.